Good morning, gentlemen. We have a really important text to look at today. It's in uh, Matthew 25. And you'll remember that uh, Mar- uh, Matthew shows us that these sermons of Jesus are very intentional because they all end with a statement like the one in chapter 26, verse 1, where Matthew says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. That's a typical ending to a sermonic portion that Matthew very intentionally gives us. And these five sermons are the things with which we should be discipled and we should be discipling other men in these teachings of Jesus. So we're now halfway through the Olivet Discourse, and Jesus has uh, given a uh, very doctrinal um, teaching uh, in chapter 24 about uh, what will uh, be happening in the near term with the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, uh, how not to be confused by all the chaos that's taking place in the world, not to think that that means that the, the end is coming. When we invade Iraq or, or Russia invades somebody else, you know, you, that doesn't mean anything in terms of the time scale, no matter what all the authors say. Every time something happens in the Middle East, just look in the Christian bookstore and sales just boom of all these books predicting the end. Uh, that have something to do with the Middle East. And Jesus basically is saying, you forget that. I don't even know when the time is coming. Only the Father knows. But he says at the end of chapter 24 that he will come at a time when we least expect it. He'll come like a thief in the night. So he, he won't be coming probably when all these books are being published to, to watch out for the end is here. It'll come at a time when you don't expect it. Uh, and so therefore the lesson is be ready. Then when we come to chapter 25, what Jesus is doing is giving us three important parables. And we're carefully going to take each one of these uh, and examine them because they each have a unique message for us. But there are some things in common with all of these parables. And I'd like to just give those uh, three common things that you'll find in these parables in chapter 25. Number one, uh, the uh, return of the Lord is going to be sudden and unexpected. The return of the Lord is going to be sudden and unexpected. That's being taught in all three parables. Jesus is stressing that point. Those are all the parables in chapter 25. The return of the Lord is sudden and unexpected. Secondly, His return will result in an unalterable division between two groups. His return will result in an unalterable division between two groups. You know, whether it's the wise and foolish virgins that we're going to study today, or whether it's uh, those who are, have invested uh, their uh, gifts, their talents, versus those who haven't, or whether it's the sheep and the goats. You see two unalterable divisions. And thirdly, uh, the lost seem to be very surprised at their rejection. The lost seem to be surprised at their rejection. Now, all three of those things are taught in these parables, and they're all three very important. We'll spend most of our time looking at the distinctives, however, of each parable because each one of them adds something to that overall framework. And especially this first one we're looking at, it's a very famous parable. It's one that's been used over and over again by Christians to study the meaning of Christian conversion. And what we'll see is it's a a very uh, arresting parable uh, about uh, really the similarities between hypocrites and genuine believers. 
The parable will show us how much they look alike. And we fool ourselves. And sometimes we encourage the, uh, our friends to be fooled by not noticing that uh, counterfeits can look an awful lot like the real thing. And we sometimes just take it for granted that someone who looks like a duck is a duck. Sometimes something that looks like a duck is not a duck. And we need to be sure that we know the difference. And then we'll see what the difference is between the real thing and the phony. And then we'll see the consequences of that difference. That's what we're going to see in this parable. It's been taught through the ages. The American Puritans and the English Puritans used to preach quite regularly on this parable because they were in a period when they were seeking to help folks in the church make these careful distinctions between genuine belief and hypocrisy. And you'll notice that Jesus had the same ministry, didn't he? He was dealing with some people who were very religious. And the most prominent group, of course, would have been the Pharisees, who were the most religious people in the church. And Jesus was constantly showing them how they're phonies. They have things on the outside that are very impressive and make everybody think that if anybody gets to heaven, it must be a Pharisee. And yet Jesus was showing that the inside of the heart, the intentions of the Spirit, the, the real life was quite different. So a lot of Jesus' ministry was making very careful and fine distinctions so that we do not, we're not self-deluded and we don't fool other people as well. Of course, we can fool ourselves and fool other people, but we can't fool Jesus Christ. And of course, that's the point here, that uh, one day everything's going to be revealed. So what we want to do in our lives as wise people is live our lives in the full knowledge of what's going to be revealed at the last day. Instead of trying to live a life based on pulling the wool over our eyes or pulling the wool over somebody else's eyes. We want to live with all of our cards on the table face up. And we want to live in the, life of all the knowledge, in the light of all the knowledge that God will give us. Let's look then at this first parable of the ten virgins that Jesus teaches about the kingdom of heaven and about the nature of true belief. Verse 1, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. And the word virgin uh, generally simply means a young woman of marriageable age. Be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with them to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. 
Okay, we want to look at verse 1, first of all, and there we see that church folks often look alike. Church folks often look alike. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. These ten look very much alike. They're dressed alike. They act alike. They live alike. And you wouldn't be able to make a distinction among them uh, so far in the story. And I'd like for us to think for just a few moments, how are they alike? And this would be a typical way that our forefathers would have examined this parable. They would have looked at all the ways in which these virgins are alike, both the wise and the foolish. And it's true in the church today. You can have someone who goes to church regularly and is a real believer. You can have someone who goes to church regularly and they're not a believer, and they look alike. And uh, our forefathers wanted to learn from this parable how we need to make very careful distinctions so that people are saved. It's not to condemn people. It's so that people can see their need for Christ. Let's look at how they're alike. First of all, they've all been invited. All ten virgins have been invited. They all got the invitation. Just like this very morning, the invitation goes out from here to everybody in this room and everybody listening on the computer that... Uh, Jesus Christ invites all to come to Him and find rest, to turn from their sins and trust in Him, to turn from their own self-righteousness and trust in His righteousness alone for their salvation, to ask the Spirit to fill our hearts and make us new. We all have that invitation. It goes out equally to everybody. So uh, Jesus doesn't make a distinction on the invitation. He's told His disciples, namely us, to go out into all the world and preach the gospel everywhere, profligately. And you remember in the parable of the four soils that we studied, the sower sowed the seed profligately on fertile ground and on infertile ground. So the distinction is not made as to where the invitation goes. The invitation is a general, universal invitation. And those who come to Him are all alike in that sense. They have all been invited, genuinely. Secondly, Notice that they have all accepted the invitation, (laughs) at least seemingly, at least outwardly. They've been invited to come to Jesus, and as far as they, at that point in their lives, understand themselves, they have accepted that invitation to come. They've been invited to church, and they come. They've been invited to participate, and they participate. All ten of these young ladies were uh, invited to this wedding feast, and they all went. Thirdly, they they all are in the church. They've basically joined in. They're part of the party. So these are not part-timers here. These are people that you would say are regular, faithful churchgoers. And we would just typically say they are regular, faithful Christians, is what we would call them. But they are in the church. They've joined the church. They've gone through the new members class. They've professed their faith. They've been baptized. They've come to the communion table. They're in the church. They're in their pew. They're there along with everybody else. There's no distinction between them and the most solid Christian in the church in terms of being in the church, in these ten virgins uh, that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the church here. And he's saying they look just alike in terms of their church participation. 
Normally we would expect if someone's not really sincere in their faith, their church attendance will fall off. Well, that's true. It will, normally, but not always. And what Jesus is talking about here is the not always case, that you have ten virgins, and here they are. They're all, uh, they're all part of the church. But as we will learn, of course, that sitting in a pew no more makes you a Christian than standing in a garage makes you a car. Uh, and some people think that just by being there, that's their identity. And there are, some, there are some ways in which people think about the Christian faith that makes them think that if you're just there, uh, you are fine in the Eastern Orthodox mentality. And I don't mean to trash your denomination, you Eastern Orthodox, but you'll, you'll know what I mean when I say this, if you have that background. That in the Orthodox tradition, if you come into the community of the light, where the candles are basically, and the light of the church, and you come into that community. It's very communal. And there's something beautiful about there. And there's also something true about it that Westerners don't get. We, we are very individualistic in the way we think about our salvation. It's just between us and Jesus. In the Eastern tradition, it's more communal, which is a beautiful thing. But the danger is that then you can think just because you come in physically into the community of light that you're right with God. And I think we're going to see that being in the church necessarily doesn't uh, make a person one who will turn out well at the end. There's something more. So that I'm, I'm not saying that we can all trash church membership or church participation. We can't. And we need to learn from other traditions sometimes that are higher in their commitments than we are. And maybe one of the Eastern Orthodox are one of those. Certainly, uh, I always say as a Presbyterian, you Baptists have a lot to teach us about commitments. And commitments are good, but commitments don't save. And that's what we want to notice here, that your commitments, as good as they may be, are not the heart of the matter, and a hypocrite can be as committed as you are. That's what you've got to watch out for. Nobody in Israel was more committed than the Pharisees. So let's not think that we're either going to upgrade our, our seating arrangements or get into heaven safely by increasing our commitments. Uh, because there's something else yet. We'll see. So they are all in the church. They all, uh, fourthly, they all have a general affection for the bridegroom. They went out to meet the bridegroom, it says in verse 1. They wanted to see him. They were part of the party that was praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want to see the bridegroom. They were waiting for him. They were getting ready to celebrate along with everybody else. Do you see how tricky this is? Then, fifthly, or wherever we are, they all call the bridegroom Lord. Now, let's skip ahead to notice that. But you'll notice that in verse 11, when they come back, the foolish virgins say, Lord, Lord. Well, it's the same word for sir, but it's curious, the word that we use for Lord. You'll find this same language in Matthew 7. Verses 21 through 23, where Jesus speaks of those who have worked miracles, who have preached the gospel, who at the end of the day say, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these things? And he says, I never knew you. But they called him Lord, and they not only said Lord, they said Lord, Lord, to emphasize it. So here you have, among the foolish virgins as well as the wise virgins, you have people who are claiming Jesus Christ to be Lord. 
Now, this can be very confusing because Paul says in 1 Corinthians that no one can say Jesus is Lord but by the Spirit of God. But what Paul also says in Romans 10 is that if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts, then we shall be saved. If we confess it with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and confess in our hearts that, he was, uh, uh, that oh, I'm sorry, they was raised from the dead, we shall be saved. So it's our voices, yes, but it's also our hearts, as we shall see as we move along. But here they, they're all calling Lord, Lord. And if you will, let me go ahead and press this point. It's, it's not on your outline, but as part of this calling him Lord, actually, they're praying the sinner's prayer. So here you have some foolish virgins who go so far as to say, Lord, Lord, open to us. They're actually praying the sinner's prayer. Open heaven to us. Make a way for us. We want to come in. Wow. You see how these similarities just knock your socks off. You're saying, can someone actually get that close to the kingdom and miss out? Can someone actually put those words in their mouths and miss out? Yes. Next, they all believe the bridegroom is coming. They believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ is what Jesus is saying here. Foolish virgins, hypocrites, can actually believe doctrinally in the second coming of Jesus Christ as well as having prayed the sinner's prayer. Notice next, they all have lamps. They're all equally equipped. The foolish virgins have lamps just as well as the wise virgins. Well, what are the lamps? Well, you know, it doesn't say specifically in the parable. You have to use your imagination a little bit. But basically what Jesus is showing us is they're all equally equipped. It's not because they, they weren't given the, the equipment they need. Now, the lamps they had probably were sticks with either cloth on the end. They had to be, uh, you know, have oil on it to make it burn uh, continually. Or it may have been a stick with a lamp on the end of it because it was to be used at night. So they would have held it up over their heads. They all had the proper equipment, which is to say that the foolish virgins, they all had an adequate explanation of the requirements to be reconciled to God. It also could suggest that they all had some gifts. Gifts, you say? Yeah, they had, all had natural gifts of a mind that God had given them to be used to repent and believe and understand the gospel. They all had probably some effect of the Spirit upon their lives. You say, how can that be? Well, Saul, King Saul, you remember we studied him once. He is a famously rejected king. He was the king that was rejected in favor of David, who was the accepted king. And of course, Saul's son Jonathan was friends with David and helped David stay alive against the schemes of his own daddy. Saul was a wicked man. He seemed to be like a Jekyll and a Hyde. But you remember on one occasion, rejected Saul is on his way up to Ramah where the prophets are. And the Spirit of God falls upon Saul. And he prophesies along with the other prophets. And everyone said among the prophets... So King Saul prophesies too? So here you have an amazing instance of the Spirit 
working upon someone without working effectually within someone. You with me? So there's a way in which if you participate in the things of the Spirit, even as an unconverted person who's going through the motions and sometimes even self-deluded, but who's, whether knowingly or unknowingly, inwardly a phony, there will be some operation of the Spirit that may very well enable some good deed on your part. This is how tricky counterfeit religion can be. Let me give you an example of this. Leave your finger in Matthew 25 and turn to Hebrews 6 with me. And this is a debated passage. Um, so if you'd like to continue to debate it, go right ahead. You'll, you'll join a long line of scholars. But I'd like to suggest something to you about it. It's, uh, it's a passage that makes us scratch our heads. Uh, he says, uh, he, this is you know in Hebrew, this is on page 2369, by the way, 2369, Hebrews 6. The, the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage Christians to persevere and also warning Christians about presumption. And here he says in the midst of his argument in 6, 4, chapter 6, verse 4, page 2369, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now the debate here is some people say, see, uh, the writer of Hebrews here is talking about someone who is genuinely converted and who fell away. And you say, I thought I was a Calvinist. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter what you are. Let's look at the Bible. But people will say, there's the example we were all looking for. All of us Arminians were looking for. And uh, some even Calvinist scholars will look at it and say, man, he's got to be describing a Christian here because he talks about someone who's been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the ages come. That sounds like a Christian. But the, the Reformed scholar will go on to say, but that's obviously never happened. Paul, the writer of Hebrews, is speaking in the hypothetical here. It'd be impossible if that were to happen to someone and then they fell away to be restored. Um, I tend to sympathize with the other scholars who say, actually, this writer is not talking about a Christian. He's actually talking about someone who could fall away. And look at all of the operations of a person's soul that can take place with someone who's not a genuine believer who could fall away. I mean, think about this. He's been enlightened. That means he has a, he has a deep level of understanding about spiritual things, about the gospel that he's tasted the heavenly gift, probably they're speaking of the Spirit, he's tasted it. He hasn't, it doesn't say here he's been sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is true of believers. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit is indwelling in him, as is true of believers. It just says he's tasted of it. So he's experienced something here. And have shared in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Shared in the life of the Holy Spirit. Uh, enjoyed the benefits of the Holy Spirit in many ways by living in the community of the Holy Spirit. And hearing some Holy Spirit-inspired sermons 
and hearing the Holy Spirit-inspired word. He, so he's, he's participated. And he's tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. He's felt the powers. He's come under some form of conviction. And then he falls away. Well, so like I say, you can go on and debate which, which way that text is speaking. But it seems to me the text is speaking of a very strong warning. And that was the purpose in that context in Hebrews 6 was to encourage the church or to warn the church, do not be presumptuous. Don't think that just because you said something or prayed something or you go somewhere regularly to church or you do something or you give something that that means that you're a wise person. It doesn't. Look at all these similarities. They're awesome. So they all have lamps. And then lastly, they all fall asleep waiting. So believers fall asleep in church. Unbelievers fall asleep in church. (laughs) Nobody likes long sermons. I guess that's the point on that one. So you can look at them. And you can see that they are very, very similar indeed. There are some, some books I've read uh, in years past, and I haven't mentioned them here in, in a, I'm not sure if I ever have really an Amen Bible study, but I think they're extremely helpful books on this topic. And, uh, you know, normally we don't talk so much about these things because it's a little scary, and we don't want the church just to be on pins and needles. And to be feeling nervous, want the church to be encouraged, which we should be. But there are some verses you know, in the scriptures that uh, tell us to be very careful about these things. Paul says, examine yourselves. Be sure you're in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 13.5. He says, test yourselves. That's a very important verse, 2 Corinthians 13.5. Um, so, uh, and then you have this Hebrew 6 text, which is very careful. Uh, it encourages us to be very careful. But there are some books uh, through the years that... Uh, especially during the Puritan era that I've, I've found helpful. One is called Alarm to the Unconverted. Alarm to the Unconverted by Joseph Alain. L, or rather A-L-L-E-I-N-E. A-L-L-E-I-N-E. And it's just uh, known as Alain's Alarm. Alarm to the Unconverted by Joseph Alain. There's another book that can be helpful, especially the first part of it on this topic of hypocrisy and of counterfeit Christianity. is called The Christian's Great Interest. The Christian's Great Interest by William Guthrie. Uh, Both of those, I believe, are published by Banner of Truth. The Christian's Great Interest by William Guthrie. A third one that uh, helped me uh, probably 25 years ago, and I was especially looking at these things and being sh- trying to be sure that I understood things clearly myself about the nature of Christian conversion and about the nature of the gospel itself it is a book entitled The Distinguishing Traits of Christian Character. It's not very long, but it's profound. The Distinguishing Traits of Christian Character. It's by Gardner Spring, who I believe was the son-in-law of Jonathan Edwards, but nonetheless, uh, in the early 19th century, what Gardner Spring, a Presbyterian minister, did, he took Edwards' th- uh, 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 writing on religious affections and he condensed it. And if you've read Edwards' work on the religious affections, you know not only is it one of the most important theological documents ever written in English and certainly one of the most profound things written in American, in, or written in English by an American, uh, you also realize you will be thankful for Gardner Spring 
in condensing it for you <laughs> and helping, helping you uh, come clear for you. But what Gardner Spring does is he divides his treatment of it into two, uh, in two halves. And the first part of it is to talk about the things that we have in common with the hypocrite. When you start reading these, you'll see how awesome this is. The things that we may have thought about ourselves that made us distinctive, we realize it doesn't really make us distinctive. The hypocrite shares many, many things that, that the, the genuine believer does also. For example, visible morality. Now, of course, uh, unbelievers, many of them, are engaged in all kinds of un immorality. But there are many people who are not genuinely converted who are visibly moral. And we speak of them as good men. And sometimes we even speak of them patronizingly as being in good shape. And what Jesus is showing us in this parable is they're not in good shape. Because you can have people who share a certain form of visible morality who do not share in belief in the gospel. Secondly, a Gardner Spring mentions speculative knowledge. That would be what we would call doctrinal knowledge. So a person can know a lot about the Bible. Uh, I've told you before that uh, Joseph Vissarionovich Zhugashvili, commonly known as Joseph Stalin, memorized the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation because he went to seminary in an Orthodox seminary in the state of Georgia. Not in our state of Georgia, but in Georgia in the former Soviet Union. And he had memorized the New Testament. And he butchered 30 million people who were his political enemies. You can have speculative knowledge. You can memorize the Bible. It doesn't make us Christians. And then he speaks here of the form of religion. So some of the things we've talked about. Go to church, take communion, uh, evangelize. Imminent uh, gifts. And we've all seen this with preachers who seem to be imminent preachers who seem to be very capable of communicating the Word of God and they themselves were lost. A convic in, in New England, for example, uh, that was one thing they used to preach on constantly was the danger of an unconverted ministry. Some of you may have read George Whitfield's sermon on the dangers of an unconverted ministry. We must be very careful. Those of you in ministry, don't become presumptuous. Just because you're full-time ministry doesn't mean you're converted. Um, a, co a conviction for sin. And Gardner Spring shows, as Edwards did, that we can come under the operation of the Spirit in being convicted for how wrong we are. But that doesn't make us a Christian. Strong assurance. Now, I would say here uh, the feeling of strong assurance. Strong assurance actually only belongs to the believer. But what the hypocrite has is what I would call presumption. And to him, it feels like assurance. He thinks he should be assured. He's only being presumptuous with God. Uh, and uh, here, lastly, Gardner Spring lists the time of your supposed conversion. And so many of us will say, oh, I, I know I'm a believer. It's right here in the front leaf of my Bible. You know, uh, and, and in my case, it would be something like March the 22nd, 1958. I profess my faith publicly. I took my stand. And they put it right there in their Bible. And that's how I know I'm a Christian. And Gardner Springs says hypocrites do that all the time. So that doesn't count for anything. So we see here what Jesus is teaching us in this very first, these very first verses. Watch out. The wise and the foolish look identical in many ways on the outside. Now, let's look at verses 2 through 9, and we'll see, but all do not have the one thing necessary. But all do not have 
the one thing necessary. There is a distinction between these two groups. It's just not what we often think. It's not even what we often look for. Now, having said that the hypocrite can do all these things, it doesn't mean that an unbeliever typically doesn't do them. For example, a hypocrite can tithe, but it's a rare thing that an unbeliever would tithe. All that this is teaching us is that it's possible that an unbeliever would tithe. It would be very rare for an unbeliever to offer his body to be burned for the sake of the gospel. But what 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us is that it's possible for an unbeliever to offer his body to be burned for the sake of the gospel and still not be converted. So if, if we see signs like this not participating in the church, not showing any interest in the Lord, not praying, not being convicted, of course we draw the conclusion the person seems to be unconverted. All that Jesus is saying is, being, is to be very careful about making the reverse statement that because they do do these things, then surely they must be a believer. Neither does this mean that everybody who joins our church, I'm looking around thinking, I'm kind of suspicious, I don't know. You know, they may be going to church, but I don't know if they're a believer. No. I treat everyone as brother and sister who comes into the church of Jesus Christ. They've been properly admitted by examination in whatever process is in their church. In our churches, examination by the elders, a spiritual examination. Our elders examine them, admit them to membership. I treat them as brother and sister. But when I see signs of the one thing missing, then pastorally, as a brother of Jesus Christ, I want to spend time with this person and see if we can get to the bottom of it. And anyone who loves their neighbor and has developed the skills, diagnostic skills, spiritual diagnostic skills, will want to use them lovingly for the advantage of another person. And what we ask our pastors to do and to develop in their skills, gentlemen, all of you who don't have the privilege, and I say this, I say this humbly and gratefully, I can't believe I get paid to do what I do, to spend my whole life doing this. And I think you should be jealous. <laughs> but if you're not, let me just say, I'm so glad you're not, because that we need people doing all kinds of stuff. And I'm so glad you do what you do. But I just want to encourage you to realize that what we want you to develop in are those pastoral skills. Every person should be a pastor. Because Jesus was. He was a shepherd. So everybody should have shepherding, uh, a shepherding heart and want to develop their shepherding skills. If you're a father, you've got to be a good shepherd. And you've got to shepherd the heart of that child, not just discipline them for their external behavior, but learn how to get at the heart and to teach their heart, encourage their heart, speak to their heart, pray for their heart. And it's those pastoral skills we all want to develop so that when we see someone who may be in spiritual need, who may have just been going through the motions and didn't even know it, we have the opportunity to drill down, ask a few questions, show them a few places in the Bible they might consider, show them what real conversion looks like, and help them. That's what we want to be able to do. So they, need, they have the one thing necessary. All do not have it. All of these ten versions do not have it. In verses 2 through 5, we see, we see that some have it and some don't. He's been talking about ten virgins. Now he says five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. 
But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So there's a difference. What's the difference? They all had the equipment of the lamp, but only five had flasks. Now, this is not the flask you take to your Ole Miss football game. It's a different kind of flask. Some of you take to your Ole Miss football game. Maybe some of us used to take flasks to football game. I won't get into how many of us want to raise a hand on that. These are different kinds of flasks. These are flasks of oil to be poured on your torch to make it burn for 15 or 20 minutes. Only five women brought flasks. What? Just think about the meaning of that. You're coming to a party. You accept the invitation. You've got all the equipment. You're dressed like everybody else. You seem to have an outward enthusiasm. But you've made no preparation for oil in your flask. And that's the real point Jesus is making. This is the difference. One has been prepared and one is not. Now, in dealing with this text, scholars throughout the centuries have tried to figure out exactly what the oil is, what the flask is. Jesus doesn't tell us what it is. So if, if we're going to look at what it is, we'll actually look at the whole of Scripture to see what the one thing necessary is. And I'll tell you what Jonathan Edwards says it is. But there's something there that's at the heart of the matter that a wise person has that a hypocrite doesn't. And let's, let's look and see what it is. Let me, let me first of all uh, tell you what Gardner Springs says. He said, I gave you the list of things he stated that we all have in common, but listen to the things that we don't have in common. And you can just almost choose among these for what the real wise person has that the foolish person does not have. A hypocrite does not have these things. That's what Gardner Spring is saying. First of all, love to God. Love to God. You can counterfeit everything except a converted heart. That's basically what, I, what I'd suggest you remember. You can counterfeit everything except a converted heart. What does that heart look like? Well, he uh, suggests, Edwards does in Gardner Spring, that you have repentance for sin. He doesn't say sorrow for sin because a hypocrite can be very sorry for their sins. But a hypocrite, as sorry as he may be, doesn't turn unto Christ. He may want to turn over a new leaf, but the reason for wanting to turn over the new leaf is to make himself feel better, to make life go better, and to make others think better of him. But the genuine believer with a love for God turns because he's in love with God and his sin has grieved the one he loves and he wants to serve the one he loves and so he turns back to him away from his sin. Not because he's concerned about what you think or because he wants to be relieved of his emotional grief or because he wants his circumstances to go better. Maybe, you know, the way things work is kind of like the rabbit, you know, rubbing the rabbit's foot. If you just kind of do what the Bible says, things will turn out better for you. That's a hypocritical way of repentance. It's hypocrisy. Unbelievers do that all the time. They're looking for the tricks of life, the seven keys to success. Hypocrites look for the seven keys for success just like you do. Right from the Bible. They'll take them from anywhere they can get them. And if they're in the Bible, I'll take them there too. 
That's not repentance. That's not evangelical repentance. That's not believing repentance. Repentance is a turning from sin because we've grieved the Lord and because we love Him and because we want Him instead of what we had. That's repentance. And then faith in Christ. Genuine trust in Jesus Christ. That cannot be counterfeited. The appearance of trust can be counterfeited, but real faith cannot be counterfeited. Self-denial and evangelical humility, Gardner Spring goes on to say. And then lastly, a devotion to the divine honor and glory of God. He speaks of some other things, but you get the idea. Let me read to you what uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said about this text and about what the real oil is. He says, A great change has to be wrought in you far beyond any power of yours to accomplish ere you can go in with Christ to the marriage. You must, first of all, be renewed in your nature or you will not be ready. You must be washed from your sins or you will not be ready. You must be justified in Christ's righteousness and you must put on His wedding dress or else you will not be ready. You must be reconciled to God. You must be made like to God or you will not be ready. Or to come to the parable before us, you must have a lamp and that lamp must be fed with heavenly oil and it must continue to burn brightly or else you will not be ready. No child of darkness can go into that place of light. You must be brought out of nature's darkness into God's marvelous light, or else you will never be ready to go in with Christ to the marriage and to be forever with Him. This is the reason Jesus said, you must, you must, you must be born again. You have to have a new nature that comes down from above. It's not worked up from below. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not just simply gaining clearer moral affections. It's something that comes from Him miraculously. He begins to live His life in you. You have a new heart. You are born anew, born from above, born again. That's the new nature. And you must put your trust completely on Jesus Christ. Trust His righteousness alone. The life He lived becomes your record. The righteousness He achieved becomes your only claim. And you must trust in the blood shed on the cross only for the remission of your sins. Not anything you can do to lower the claims against you. Not anything you can do to pay off part of your debt. Renounce all of that crap. And that's what it is. And I call it what Paul calls it. Rubbish. He called it crap. Dung. It stinks. It's not worth anything. It's less than nothing. It's less than nothing. You're better off with nothing than to claim that. So you leave your weak, feeble, polluted acts of righteousness and you turn to His perfect righteousness. And you trust His work on the cross to remove the stain of all of your sin. You're not trusting in anything you do. So you're trusting in Him and His work on Calvary and His perfect life and you're asking the Spirit to come into your life and dwell in you and take over you and take up headquarters in your life. Now there's a converted man. And you can't counterfeit that. And you can't ruin that either. And you can't send a person like that to hell because light doesn't go to darkness. 
And God will not send His own children away. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Here is a soundly converted person. And a soundly converted person can never be ripped out of the hands of Jesus Christ. He said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And then he said this, the Father is greater than I. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. So what happens when God truly converts a man, it is for eternity. It cannot be changed. But what Jesus is saying is that some people think that's already happened to them. And it's not. And so therefore, when they look at the church, they assume that everybody else has had the hypocritical experience that they've had. Have you ever noticed this? That someone that's not been genuinely converted assumes you've not been genuinely converted either. They think they've been converted. They think that's what conversion means. And they think that's what you've got. So you're just as hypocritical as they are. And you're just as phony as they are. So a hypocrite actually thinks everybody only has what they have. They're self-deluded. That's the reason for the parable. Gentlemen, there's something more than, than what the hypocrite has seen. There's something more than what the regular attender gets. There's a profound spiritual relationship that's developed with God through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's intimate. It's life transforming. It changes everything. That's what Jesus is trying to show us here. There's more than the hypocrite has seen. That's the reason that if you can fight through all of the hostility that you get, and all the phoniness and excuses that you hear. And if you can pastorally work with people and help them see what's really in there, in, in the gospel, what's available to them, you do them the greatest favor of their lives. So we see that some have it and some don't. We need to be sure we know what it is we're supposed to have. And you get a real graphic example of this, of course, with Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira. You have Joseph, uh, his name's Barnabas, uh, Barnabas comes and sells a piece of property because in Acts 4, everybody's living in community. No one there has an unmet need. Barnabas is moved by the Spirit to sell a piece of property and give all the proceeds to the apostles to be redistributed among the poor in Jerusalem. So what did Ananias and Sapphira do? They're going to fake it. Oh, that looks cool. Everybody thinks Barnabas is a really cool guy. They think he's a sweetheart. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll do the same thing. This is what they're thinking. So they go and they sell a piece of property and then they pretend as though they're bringing all of the proceeds into the feet of the apostles. And I'm sure they brought a very nice offering. Maybe they sold the property for 100000 and maybe they brought 50000 That's fine. You can do that. People sell property all the time. Give half the proceeds to the church. Fine. But what Ananias and Sapphira did, they did the phony thing. They pretended to do what Barnabas did. They pretended they were giving all the proceeds. And they let everybody be uh, to misconstrue what they were doing. And you know what happened to Ananias? Boom, he's gone, he's dead, he's cold, out, gone, exit, out the door. And Peter excoriated him for his hypocrisy. He was pretending, and the, and the Holy Spirit wouldn't have anything to do with it in the early church. The Holy Spirit was protecting that early, earliest fellowship from this deadly disease of hypocrisy. Then Sapphira comes in three hours later. Peter says, did you give all the proceeds of this land to the church? Yeah. Boom, she's gone, out. Same people that took Ananias out, dragged Sapphira out of the house. Gone. Purging the church. And we're told <laughs> in one of the Bible's great understatements, and everybody was afraid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which hypocrite's going next? <laughs> so watch out. What that was in the early church, it was a, it was a visitation of the judgment of God. 
in a unique and powerful way. And you see that every once in a while, this powerful visitation. Actually, a revival is a visitation. And people can see the differences between hypocrisy and genuine belief. That's, a lot, that's really what a revival is. It helps people see the difference. They get convicted by the difference. And the hypocrites begin getting converted. That's what happens in a revival. And then, of course, the external non-churched world then begins to be harvested for faith. But it starts in the church where hypocrites get converted. We use the word hypocrite in a really dramatic way. People who are obviously pretending and taking advantage of people. No, you can see here it's much more subtle than that. It's people who think they're well-intentioned and everybody else thinks they're well-intentioned. But they're still not the real deal. So uh, uh, let's look at Roman numeral 2b. The coming of the bridegroom will reveal our hearts. At midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Okay, the day's coming when whether there's oil in your lamp is going to be revealed. This isn't going to go on where you can hide that, hide your heart. One day it'll be shouted from the top of the house. Everything will be revealed and it'll be the second coming of Christ. Thirdly, we cannot borrow from others. This is a really important point. These women who were foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Come on now, share what you got. And what Jesus is teaching us, you know, for one thing, in the practical nature of the parable, if the wise virgins had given their oil, they would have gone out to meet the bridegroom, and about five minutes later they all would have run out of oil. And nobody would have had any light. So they'd been out there in the dark with no light whatsoever. So, of course, you've got to have enough light to keep some of the tortures going. So, it, you know, not that that's the point that Jesus makes in the parable, not even that that's important, but you can see how they weren't being mean and nasty. They, you just the oil you're given you need for yourself because you need to shine the light. And you can't share it. And sometimes, you know, we say, boy, I have a, you should, you should meet my wife. Boy, she prays. Woo, she prays all the time. And what's that old southern gentleman doing? Bragging on his godly wife because he's a heel. Uh, you know, he's nothing but a phony hypocrite. And so what he's going to do, he's going to say he's got some religion in his house because his wife prays a lot. Oh, you should meet my grandmother. Mm, boy, was she a church person. And I could brag about my grandmother. Hosted all the missionaries, prepared all the communion elements, husband sang in the choir, chairman of the deacons. You know, just go on and on. What a religious person I am. I must be, surely God will be fine with me because my granddaddy and my grandmother, boy, they were committed people at First Baptist Athens. Think again. We cannot borrow from others, gentlemen. And the children of Israel in John 8, 39, they said to Jesus, what are you talking about our being in slavery to sin? Our father is Abraham. Well, we'll find out if your father is Abraham, Jesus said, because you're, you're trying to kill me. And I don't think Abraham would have done that. So those who are Abraham's children are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul teaches in Galatians. We cannot borrow from others. Now, Roman numeral three, and lastly, there are no second chances, brothers. Get this clear in our minds. His judgment is irreversible. They came to the marriage feast. The door was shut. Afterwards, the virgins come also saying, look at this language, Lord, Lord, open to us. Open to us. The door has been shut. There's no limbo. There's no middle ground. There's no second chance. Our chance is now. Our chance actually was in the Garden of Eden and we blew it. We've already blown it. 
And by God's grace, He allows the gospel to go out for a second chance. Nobody deserves a second chance. But by His mercy, many are given it. And here's the, as the Bible says, Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 6, today's the day of salvation. So now's the time. Don't put it off. Because when the end comes, the end is here. Secondly, notice, His coming reveals our relationship with the Lord. He said, I never knew you. I don't know you. That doesn't mean He doesn't know your name. It doesn't mean He doesn't recognize you. It means He doesn't have a relationship with you. The word know, as you know, means intimate sexual relationships in the Old Testament. To know a woman was to have sexual relationships with her. To know the Lord is to have an intimate relationship with Him. He says, I don't know you. I don't have a relationship with you. That's the heart of the matter. We don't have a relationship. You're going to church. You're paying your tithes. You're singing the songs. You're acting uh, morally. But we have no relationship. Thirdly, he says the lesson, get ready now. Look at verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Watch. How do you watch? Let me give you three things that I think are very, very important as we close. Number one, be sure of your conversion. Be sure of your conversion. Paul, or rather Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10, make your calling and election sure. I can't make it sure for you. Your mama can't make it sure for you. You make it sure. You say, how do I do that? You turn to the Lord. You say, Lord, take my heart. Search me, says David, and see if there be any wicked way in me. And you give that wicked way over to the Lord and, and assign it to Him on the Calvary's cross and let Him pay for the, for the punishment of that sin. And you trust in Him. And you ask Him to take up residence in your heart. And if you have doubts, you go to a mature brother and you let him minister to you and help you search your heart. Be sure you're saved. Secondly, be sure of your gospel. Be sure of your gospel. That's the reason that we have this parable for your equipment in the gospel. So what we've been studying today is very important for us as we deal with people around us. We realize there are such things as wise virgins and such things as foolish virgins. And we've just diagnosed the difference between the two. So that helps us in our understanding of the gospel. How does someone hear the gospel and apply the gospel and become converted? So we all become better spiritual physicians by studying the scriptures. Thirdly, be sure of your evangelism. And what I mean by this is, if this is true, we have a lot of work to do within our churches. So as we evangelize all of Memphis and evangelize our country and evangelize the world, and I'm committed to all those things, I'm first of all, and I think you should be too, committed to evangelizing our own churches, being sure that we know the gospel and we know Christ and those around us know the gospel and those around us know Christ. Because it is possible to be a very talented phony and they will be found out at the end. And in our love for them, we want to be sure that they have the one thing necessary, a heart for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we've all been duly warned by this amazing text that you taught your disciples and now teach us. We pray that we will be duly warned and also encouraged to know that the big dissimilarity between believers in the world is a, an act of your doing. You have graciously drawn us to yourself, graciously laid our sins upon Jesus Christ, graciously clothed us with His righteousness, graciously taken up residence in our hearts, and graciously have your eye on us right now to come get us at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Oh God, how wonderful you are. 
And with wonder and amazement and gratitude in our hearts, enable us to go as men caring for those around us, that those would come to know you in our knowing, would come to know you and be wise followers of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.